Again, welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb, um, one of the pastors here at The Grove. So guys, glad you guys are here with us this Christmas season. So fun fun fact, fun note, the song that we uh, just sang was actually a song that we wrote here at the church uh, between uh, me, Benjamin, Garrett, Reggie, and then Benjamin's little brother Matthew as well this past week. We've been working uh, on trying to write a song that walks us through pretty much the sermon series. Um, and so that's a song we'll be singing throughout that is a, a Grove Music Original LLC. Um, so there you go. Uh, but they did, yeah, they did an outstanding job. Um, and so anyway, so that's pretty much the sermon series wrapped up. So you've heard it, so just keep coming, but that's pretty much what it is we'll be walking through. Uh, and so asking the question, what child is this? Who is Jesus? Uh, because Christmas is an unbelievable season. It's my favorite time of year. It's the, you might say it's the most wonderful time of the year. As snow begins to fall, our soap here in Florida, uh, here slowly on our, uh, on our brow, as we stop and remember uh, what this season is all about. Michael Buble comes out from his cage this one time of year uh, to sing his songs and have his Christmas special. Uh, and it is uh, a time which we get together with family, we eat our favorite foods, uh, and it is a, uh, a sentimental holiday at its finest. Uh, Frank Sinatra crooning in the background, As we come together and give presents to one another, we get together with people we haven't seen in a while. You hear commercials of what it is you need to have this holiday season and what you should have this holiday season, what you cannot live without this holiday season. And there are so many things that are pulling for our hearts. And it's sometimes hard, particularly in our culture, to stay focused on what Christmas is all about, why it's here in the first place. Even within the church sometimes, I think we can miss the reason why Jesus has come. We can sometimes over-sentimentalize the birth of Jesus and focus so much on this beautiful little seven-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus who's so cute in the little manger, and we miss what exactly Jesus came to do. And so what I want to make sure is we're walking through these four weeks kind of as a, a chance to recenter our hearts, to go back and ask the question, what child is this? that we're celebrating. Who is Jesus? What does the Bible say that he came to do? What exactly was the purpose of him being born 2,000 years ago, and why are we celebrating today? And as we do that, I want us to walk through the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Because remember, I want us to try to place ourselves in the first century there with other Israelites. What would have their perspective have been of hearing the news of Jesus born? What would they have been looking for? What would their hopes have been? What were the promises that they would have heard in that time? I want to try to place us back there. So what I want us to do over the next four weeks is walk through these kind of huge promises of the Old Testament, showing us about this promised son that one day will come. Matthew 1 wasn't the first time that this child was mentioned. Friends, the entire Bible hinges around the promise of this child to be born. And so I want us to walk through and look at kind of these pillars of the Bible in which kind of hang the entire story of the scriptures. And so we'll be beginning uh, today in Genesis 3. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. We'll be in Genesis 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the ones next to you. Uh, it's going to be on page like 3. Yeah, 3. It's pretty, pretty early on in the story. We mess everything up. doesn't take long. If you don't have a Bible at home with you, take that with you. That's our gift uh, to you. We'll be in Genesis 3. So kind of a quick summary recap of what's happening up until this point in Genesis. Genesis 1 is the story of creation. God speaks and things start to be. 
So God creates the, the world and the sun and the stars and the animals. And finally, he creates humans. He creates man and woman. And in all of the creation, he sees this is now good. And he sees man and woman together. He says, this is very good. And man and woman were unique in how they were created as they were created in God's image. They have in Latin this term, the imago dei, the image of God stamped on their hearts. And it sets them apart from the rest of creation, carrying around now as image bearers of God, giving them this different kind of worth and value from the rest of creation. But then in uh, Genesis 2, we see kind of this zoomed in story of creation, particularly of man and woman. Woman. But then we get to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, something else enters the scene. And there's this serpent that slithers up. And he comes up to Eve and he begins to talk. Now listen, so disclaimer, there's some weird stuff in the Bible. I get that. Right? Maybe you're here and you're like, man, this stuff is fantasy, it's fable. Listen, I understand there are things that seem extreme to us. But for, uh, for me, as I look through the Bible, the main thing that we want to look at and ask the question of is, is Jesus who he says he is? And did he actually raise from the dead? Because if he did that, then a talking snake isn't the worst of my problems. It's not the biggest thing that I have to get beyond. But here in Genesis 3, we have this story of this serpent that comes to tempt Adam and Eve. And in uh, verse 2, the woman then responds and says, well, listen, we can eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So Eve is telling and having this conversation with this serpent saying, hey, listen, God set us here. And he said, listen, have at it. You can eat anything you want. Go and keep the garden. But there's this one tree that you can't eat. Don't go there. So I don't know if you have children or not, but if you do, you know, if you tell them to just not do one thing, that's the one thing that they are going to go and do. And yet here, Eve tells this to the serpent and said, listen, God set up these parameters. He said, here's a thousand ways of obedience and here's one of disobedience. And the serpent zones in on that one and says, did God really say? Is that not the same way that he still tempts us today? Did God really say? You can't do this, or that you shouldn't live this way, or that you shouldn't live your life centered around this. Did, did he really say that? And the serpent tells her, no, 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 you won't die if you eat it. That's ridiculous. Don't listen to God. Listen, I'll tell you, verse 5, in fact, God knows that if you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and then you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil. And he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to hoard all the power for himself. The woman then saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the story of the fall of humanity, the temptation and the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve come, and they disobey the one thing that God told them not to do. And here in this moment, sin enters into this perfect creation for the very first time. Before this, there was complete peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. There was this perfect peace between man, creation, God. God walked with man like a friend in the cool of the day. There was no separation between Adam and Eve and God. But here in this moment, they turn their back on God. And they say, you know what? I think I've got a better plan for my life than what God has told me. And they listen to the serpent. They turn their back on God and sin enters into the world. And with it comes all of this stuff, all of this brokenness with it. Right, we see this, uh, Paul writes about this in his letter to the Romans um, in Romans 5 verse 12. 
He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. So Paul's saying in this moment, sin enters into the world for the very first time. And with it comes this thing called death. Mankind had no idea what death was before this moment, but sin ushered this in with it. And then not only did that come on Adam and Eve, but that then spread to all people because all have sinned. And so there's this disease that enters into this perfect creation for the first time. And this sin, this death begins to get passed down because it's hereditary. Every single person born after Adam and Eve carries with them the same tendency to sin. Right, and, and we like to, as, as Sonny had mentioned, this is one of the differences between often Eastern and Western religions is there's kind of this sense in the East to say, no, everyone's typically good, and we're good people. Even in America today, people may say, oh, for the most part, people are good. But I've got a two-year-old, and she is adorable as can be. But I don't have to teach her how to stop being good. That's not just her natural tendency. Oh, you know what, I'm just gonna go share all my toys. This is easy. You know, oh, you want me to just obey what you say? That's fine. It's so easy to obey, Dad. I will go and do all of that. You only have to ask me twice. That's not the tendency within children. We have to teach children how to not bite each other. That's the, that's the thing that we have to step in to do because sin has infected the deepest part of our hearts from the very beginning. There's this tendency towards self that we're inwardly bent from the very beginning. And that disease has spread to all people because all have sinned and death has been brought in with it. So this chapter gives Christians a worldview of why the world is the way that it is today. Right? There's no one, I don't think, on the face of this planet who would say that the world's in good shape. We all know that something's wrong. Right? You turn on the news. You open a newspaper, if you have one of those or know what that is. You open it up and you read it and we see the headlines and it's just thing after thing. And we know that there's something wrong with this world. Everyone does. And from a Christian worldview, we see in Genesis 3, the reason why there is this wrong in the world is because this sin entered into the scene and brought with it its disease and all of its uh, symptoms and all of its consequences. Death enters in. Had never done that before. I think that's one of the reasons why death is often so hard for us is because there's something within us that knows this was not how I was created to be was not created to experience this. We weren't. We see not only that there is this curse that falls on man, but also the creation is cursed. God curses the ground from thorns and thistles now. Adam will have to work. And so all of creation as well experiences this curse. So we see things like natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes. Friends, that's a result of this curse of this action that ushered in this brokenness into this world. Paul again writes later in Romans 8 and describes it as creation groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, for Jesus to return when that curse will be lifted. Sickness that we experience, cancer, heart attacks, wars, conflicts, goodness, every, everything that we find wrong in this world, Diet Coke, all of it. <laughs> the worst parts of humanity create this artificial drink that's just anyway all of it finds its root in these verses in Genesis 3 and there is now for the first time this separation between God and man that had never existed before we feel now the brokenness of that curse that's fallen on us 
And there's this gap, this separation. Our sin separates us from this holy God. That God no longer walks with us as a friend in the cool of the day, but there is now this gap because he is a just judge. Holy and righteous has to punish our sin because all of us have sinned. And there is now this separation. And not only is there a separation from God, we're no longer under his rule, but we're actually in our own flesh. We're under the rule of someone else. So something else that happens here in Genesis 3 is we see the woman was deceived, the man was deceived, and every single person that's been born after that falls into that same line, as we're deceived by this very same serpent, which later we find out is the devil, Satan. And the way that the Bible talks about how now the enemy rules in this world, it says that he is just that, he is the ruler of this world. He now has this dominion over creation. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 says, calls him the ruler of the power of the air, the very spirit now working in the disobedient. And so this serpent, this, uh, this enemy is now given rule over creation. As we have now fallen, we've sinned, we, we fall underneath his rule. We are now slaves to sin and slaves to him, separated from God, experiencing the curse of our sin as we live and one day ultimately have to experience the curse of our sin as we have to stand before God and experience the wrath that is just, justly meant for us in response to our sin. So what can we do about it? Nothing. There's nothing that we can do ourselves to fix that problem. And until you come to terms with that, you cannot be saved. If you don't think you're that much of a sinner, then you won't need that much of a savior. Anyone who's sick won't go to the doctor unless they know that there is something wrong and they can't do it anymore. And it's that realization, that admission that goes, something is wrong and I can't fix it, that drives us to help. And friends, the same with Jesus until we pause and realize what it is that God has now meant for our sin and go, there is nothing we can do to fix it. We will not run to him for our help. And so that's the state of things. In Genesis 3 and still in our world today, sin has rushed into the world and brought with it death and sadness and destruction. And at the very same time, enslaving all of mankind to this serpent, the devil as God's wrath is fixed on us because of our sin with no hope of being able to save ourselves. Merry Christmas. (laughs) But praise God, the Bible doesn't end on page 3. The story doesn't end there. It's in the midst of that brokenness, that darkness, that tragedy, that God steps in here in Eden and he speaks. And he's speaking still today. So what does he say? And that's what we see in the middle of these curses given to the serpent, creation, Adam and Eve. God drops this promise in, in verse 15, that I want us to focus in on this morning. God's talking to the serpent And he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I want to read that one more time. I want to make sure that we're we're hearing that. God says, I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring, the, the seed of the serpent, and her offspring, the seed of the woman. There will be this conflict, hostility between these two offsprings. And you, uh, the offspring, the seed of the woman will strike the serpent's head and you will strike his heel. So God, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this hopelessness, steps in and he speaks this promise. 
And he speaks this promise so that Adam and Eve are probably right over and they can hear. I know they can hear because of how Adam responds later on. And it's here in this verse, in this sentence, we get the very first whisper of the gospel in the scriptures. As God says, this world is now broken. Sin has entered in and there's no way for mankind to come back to me. So I will bring this offspring from Eve and he will one day rise up and crush the serpent's head. Now he'll be bruised in the process. He will have his heel struck. Some translations say that he will bruise his head and he will bruise his heel. He will crush the serpent's head and his heel will be bruised. But in the process, the serpent will be crushed and that hostility will be put to an end. For this is the very first hint of the gospel. And I would make the claim that the entire, if you want to understand the entire Bible, you have to make sure you understand this verse. Because I would say that the rest of the Bible is just a commentary on this sentence. It's an explanation of what God means here. The entire story of Scripture unfolds in the shadow of Genesis 3.15. And if we miss this, then we will miss the entire rest of the Bible. And we'll begin to just read them as little individual stories that kind of maybe apply to our lives and kind of maybe don't. But whenever we read this and we see that this shapes the way we view Scripture, then we begin to understand the Bible is not primarily about you. It's primarily about Jesus. And that's the way that Jesus read. He said, all of Scripture is testifying and bearing witness about me. It's the story of God redeeming his broken people through his son, this offspring, the seed of the woman. And so as you read the Bible, read it with this verse in mind. And I don't know if you've been on Facebook recently, but if you ever pull up a Facebook video and you kind of minimize it down on the bottom of your phone and you keep scrolling, the video stays on the corner and just keeps playing. As you scroll through, you can check your feed. You can see what great new meme is out there. See if there's any good dad puns out there. There's some great dad puns floating around right now. Uh, I was about to say some, but it doesn't make sense without a picture, so we'll just move on. I love a good dad pun. Uh, Anyway... But as you do that, the video stays in the bottom corner, getting away from dad puns. The video stays in the bottom corner as you scroll through. Friends, what I want us to do, is, or want you to do, is you read the Bible, place Genesis 3.15 like that corner video as you read through. As you scroll through the rest of the Bible, make sure that you have this verse there in the corner of your eye because it's this verse that will begin to interpret and color. It's the key to understanding the entirety of the scriptures. If you miss the first 30 minutes of the Fellowship of the Ring, of the Lord of the Rings, you will not understand the rest of those three movies. It will be a nightmare. It's like, what is this little person walking around with a ring needing to go to a volcano for? If you haven't seen it, that already sounds so weird, right? Because you miss the very beginning. You miss the explanation of what this ring is and what has to happen to it. And friends, if you miss this verse in Genesis 3, then you will miss the entire story of the Bible. God lays it out. And there are three things that we see here in particular in this verse. One, we see that the serpent's head will be struck, it will be bruised, it will be crushed, inflicting a mortal wound. So that's the first promise. The serpent's head will be crushed. Secondly, this son of Eve, this offspring, will be bruised on his heel. He'll be struck on his heel. He will absorb wounds himself. So in the process of crushing the serpent, this offspring will himself be bruised and third we see that there will be this conflict and hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that's the third promise God says listen there's going to be this hostility that happens and this unfolds for us in the rest of the story of the Bible it's a commentary explaining how this proclamation comes to pass 
And so I want to just a bird's eye view then sweep through the Bible as we see this this, um, promise unfold. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Who will this son be? Who will this child be that will one day rise up to crush the serpent's head? Well, it doesn't take us long. We see Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. And we see right away that Cain was full of hate and jealousy, and he kills his brother who worshiped God rightly. The seed of the woman and hostility between the seed of the serpent. Fast forward a couple chapters to Noah, and Noah was persecuted because he preached the righteousness of God, and people ridiculed him because he built an ark before anyone had ever seen rain before. Built an ark for a hundred years and nothing ever happened. The people were like, listen, what are you doing? Why do you have that gopher wood making a boat when it's never rained a drop on this world before? You idiot. Noah, what are you doing? But Noah kept building. And one day Noah and his family went onto the ark and they were ridiculed the whole way. And we know what happens next as we see the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 12, this guy named Abram gets recruited into this snake-crushing promise by God, and he's told that he will give birth to an entire nation that will eventually produce that promised son. But we see there's tension between his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and we see this hostility continue of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this nation then begins to be formed from Abram whose name was changed to Abraham. And God places kings over that nation. And we see the first two kings, Saul and David, one living for himself and one following after God. And there's this conflict between the two as Saul is trying to kill David time and time again. And there's this conflict, this hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then the nation of Israel becomes, uh, becomes a nation. It's formed together. That nation comes to pass, and God's people were formed from Abram, but there was a problem. The serpent gets into that camp. The serpent finds his way into the people of Israel, and sin infects all the people there. And that there begins to be opposition from within, this civil war that happens. The nation splits The faithful wither, and the serpent becomes even more powerful as the hostility and conflicts continue. Later, this guy named Elijah was a prophet who came to live, and the serpent, in fact, believed that he was now beginning to be triumphant, probably. Has he won? Has he snuffed out this promise of Genesis 3? If you open up the book and just read it from beginning to end, there are times where it seems like God will lose. Is this going to actually happen? The children of Israel seem like they're all gone. At this point in Israel's history, this guy named Elijah sitting in a cave goes, I am the only one that's left. In 1 Kings 19, 14, Elijah is convinced that he's the only faithful one that is left. But God assures him, no, there are 7,000 others. There's this remnant that I have kept that will keep this promise alive. The sun is still to come. The fight rages on then. The serpent seems so strong. The people of God seem hopeless. So God sends messengers to remind them of the hope, to remind them of the promise that they have. These messengers in the Old Testament were called prophets. They would come and they would say, no, hold on. God has not failed you. He is still going to bring this to fruition. He has not forgotten you. He will send his deliverer. The promise is still true, but years pass and the Messiah doesn't come and the people turn their backs again. So God sends more prophets, and the people turn their backs. More prophets, people turn their backs. And so God continues to send these messengers in spite of the people's rejection of them. Until finally, for 400 years, God just remains silent. The end of the Old Testament, before the New Testament, there's 400 years where God doesn't say anything to his people. Generations of Israelites hear nothing from God. 
And so imagine being in that moment, wondering, where is this God that I've heard about? I've read the stories about a Red Sea being parted, about kings being raised up and conquering nations and these grand promises that God will deliver us, but I haven't heard a thing. And not only have I not heard a thing, but our capital city, Jerusalem, has now been overrun. We're now occupied by Rome, this foreign country, and I'm supposed to believe that God's going to deliver us. It seems as though the seed of the serpent might have finally won. Israel seems to have fallen. But in the midst of that silence and that tragedy, God's word comes again, just like it did in Eden. But this time it was through a baby that was born of a virgin, the true word of God, Jesus Christ. And this at last is that promised offspring, the seed of the woman, the son of Eve has finally come. But the enemy knows this, the serpent knows this, and we see the violence and the hostility escalate quickly. As Herod then gives the order to kill all the male children under two years old that are in and around Bethlehem to make sure we get rid of this one son. But God protects him. The seed of the serpent is trying desperately to destroy this promised one, but he is failing. Till finally, the serpent begins, gets a chance to come face to face with this one, this child, this promised son of God. Jesus Christ and in the enemy the serpent tempts him just like he did with Eve and we flash back then to the garden and we hold our breath wondering will he fall just like his mother did can he withstand the temptations of the evil one will he be able to stay faithful but he doesn't fall he stays strong and he continues on then in his public ministry and the religious elite mock him. They persecute him. They plot to kill him. They attempt to stone him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are working with all they can to try to remove him from that power. And this promised son has finally come to his own, but even his own did not receive him. The people of Israel were then the night before or the day before he was crucified, got together and were crying out for him to be killed. They did not receive him. They were now, the Jerusalem streets were now littered with a crowd that were shouting together with this man who was on trial, crucify him, crucify him. And so what was this? It was the hostility of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this story reaches its climax finally on the next day on a hill outside of the city. The son of Eve, this promised child, was being led to death. The serpent seemed to be on the edge of victory. Finally, I can snuff out this promise once and for all. If he couldn't sway and have Jesus fall, he could at least kill him and do it away with Genesis 3.15 once and for all. Jesus is nailed to the cross. He's raised up to die, and he breathes his last. The story seems to be over. This promised son has died. Hope is quenched, and the serpent has won. Or at least so it seemed. Because we have to pause at this moment. I want us to rewind and look back at Genesis 3.15 and remember what the promise said. Yes, the serpent would be crushed, but how would that serpent be crushed? Through the bruising of the sun. And we see this then expanded throughout in the Old Testament. And Isaiah 53 picks up on this. We read it earlier that he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him and we are healed, how? By his wounds. 
The Bible is explaining to us that for us to be able to be healed and experience life, this promised son of Eve has to be pierced. He has to be crushed. He has to experience wounds. He has to be bruised. His heel must be struck. He must suffer in our place for us to be brought to life. Continues on in the New Testament in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. says, Jesus also shared in this, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. This is the way in which God defeats this serpent. This is the way in which God crushes this serpent is through his own death to defeat the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. It is through that suffering, through that bruising, through that crushing that then the enemy is crushed and he is then brought to life. And so then they took his wounded body up off the cross. They took it to a tomb over in a cave. They placed a stone in front of the entrance and they sealed it, thinking that maybe first century duct tape could keep the conquering Messiah in his place. But sure enough, three days later, the ground began to rumble. Can you imagine what I would have given to be a gardener just around on that morning, that first Easter morning? You begin to feel something shake. You turn around, you see the seal begin to crack. And suddenly the stone begins to roll back, wondering what in the world is going on. And as the stone rolls away, the entrance now is wide open. And you see the shadows inside mask this man that then rises. And he begins to walk out. And I cannot help but imagine the very first thing out of the shadow of that tomb was a bruised heel that has now conquered. He had won. This wounded victor had arrived. The son of Eve finally showed up on the scene and fulfilled God's promise. The serpent's head has been crushed. His heel has been bruised, but the enemy has not won. He has defeated him through his death, and he then ascends to heaven and will one day return again to usher in his kingdom fully. Friends, that is the drama of salvation. That's the story of the Bible. It's the explanation of Genesis 3.15. As we see, why did Jesus come? He didn't come primarily to just make you happy. He didn't come just to make your lives a little bit better than they were last week. He came to give you a hope that nothing in this world can touch. He came to crush the serpent's head. He came to defeat everything that the serpent brought in with it. All the sin and all the death and all the brokenness in this world. So that now, as we step back, we no longer have to look to Eve wondering, Eve, where is your son? Where is this promised one who will one day come and crush the serpent's head? We can now turn our gaze for all those who have followed Jesus Christ and can look to death and go, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Because my risen Savior has crushed you. And there is nothing that you now hold over me. Yes, one day I will die, but I have hope that I will one day rise again just like Jesus did. You will not have the final word in my life. The sin that we struggle with today does not have bondage over you because it has been crushed. It has been defeated. And so this holiday season, don't lose sight of who you are celebrating 
Don't get swept up so much in the sentimentality of Christmas, looking at sweet baby Jesus who's wrapped in swaddling clothes, that we forget that whenever we look at that manger, we ask ourselves, what child is this? We can say this at last is the serpent crusher who has come to deal with all the sin and death in this world once and for all, to deliver me and give me a hope that is unshakable. And he has now come at last to deliver and ransom his people. Here is the son of Eve. Do not forget who that baby is. Yes, the babyhood of God is a real thing. He was a real baby. We'll, we'll get to that in a few weeks. But we need to see that the reason why he came was to accomplish the promise that God had given him, to come and crush the serpent's head. The hostility that breaks out after that and the bruise that he received in our place. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the center point of the Bible. And it's the center point of this church as we hold it forward saying we are all about Jesus. Now, there are implications of that in our lives, but that is the primary reason why we exist, is to make disciples of Jesus, to point people to him saying, here is the one that can give you life, hope, peace, joy, and satisfaction that nothing else in this world can. Don't believe that the new iPhone can do it for you. It's cool, right? The little Animoji thing is awesome, but it cannot satisfy the part of your heart that's longing for something else. Don't think that a higher paycheck will give you, finally, what it is that you need to make you happier. Friends, just look. Some of the most unhappy people in this world are the richest. I will not make you happy. Don't think that more obedient children or nicer clothes or a better-looking home or a better outward appearance or more followers on Facebook will make you happier. It will not. It is the same lie that the enemy is telling you today that he told uh, Eve thousands, however long ago it was, a long time ago, did God really say that he will satisfy you? No, 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 don't listen to him. Look at this other stuff that I've got. And friends, that often becomes no more stronger than it does in this season in which the entire uh, capitalistic campaign comes around our ears into our living rooms, now into the palm of our hands going, hey, listen, this is what you need. This will make you happy. Get a new car with this cool bow on it. Wrap it up. I don't know how they wrap a car up in the commercials. That's so unrealistic. But they just go, if you walk out on Christmas morning and you see this beautiful car with a bow on it, then you'll be happy. For this is the lie of the enemy. As we come and we turn to the only one that can satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. And I know it's true. I know that each and every person here, we've tried to cram something in that longing in our souls to try to satisfy us, and it's left us wanting more. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, has said something, I don't have the quote, but he says something along the lines of, that if we long for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, doesn't the most rational explanation mean that we were meant for another world? We were meant for something else this serpent crusher who will come one day to end all of our sadness and all of our sin, to give us hope and one day ultimately redeem us and bring us back into that relationship with God in which there is no sin, there is no separation, back into the garden where we can walk with God in the cool of the day. Friends, that's how the Bible ends in Revelation, in a garden city as we return to Eve, uh, return to Eden. So let's remember as we ask this Christmas season, what child is this? We begin here to see that this child is the son of Eve, the serpent crusher who's come at last to deal with our greatest problem, sin and death. Let's pray.